relay team ran the race on the track by themselves. What had happened the day before in one of the final qualifying heats is the U.S. women's team, as they were making the transfer on the third leg, dropped the baton. What's interesting with the history of U.S. Olympic teams, we, year after year, genuinely have the fastest sprinters in the world. But we also have this problem. Many of the years in which we were not successful in winning gold medals at the Olympics or the World Championships, it was not because we didn't have runners fast enough to compete. It was because we botched the passing of the baton. Now, this particular situation at the Rio Olympics was a little bit different in that the dropping of the baton was not the fault of the U.S. runners. There was actually a, a Brazilian lady who had uh, interfered or actually got out of her lane. There was contact, and because of that, they judged that the U.S. team had a right to rerun their race. And so the next day, they didn't make everybody run again, but the U.S. girls literally ran on the track all by themselves and those ladies ended up having the fastest time and moving on to the next round. What I want us to think about today is that idea of passing the baton and making sure that the baton gets passed spiritually to the next group of runners. It has been a privilege to be here. I'm grateful for the elders for allowing me to be here, for Doug extending the invitation and for your wonderful hospitality. I appreciate John Cackleman in doing our graphic work for our theme today that you've been seeing in the bulletin and some of these slides on connecting the dots. Just as when we were children, you would do those pictures and you'd draw a line connecting the dots till you had the, the picture that you were after at the end, whether it was a horse or a bike or whatever it may be. What we're dealing with is connecting the dots in the sense of taking faith in the next generation so that we get a picture of a life that lives and looks like Jesus Christ. And so we've talked about the idea of faith factors and what are those factors that influence a life of faith that lives on long after young people move out of our homes. We've talked about the trust and who were the two people that God could trust to raise the Savior of the world. Now I'd like to talk about passing it on. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to connect what we're going to look at in one life back with what we talked about a little bit in class. As we think about this idea of not dropping the baton, because it's one thing to, to drop a baton in an international race. It is another thing to drop a spiritual baton. And I believe we have a responsibility to pass the baton. When I was at Freed Hardeman, when I got there, they didn't have anybody to work with their youth program. And because in addition to preaching, I'd worked with young people along the way and always had a love in that area, I began to work with their youth program. And one of the things I started early on is every time a youth and family major graduated, I gave them a baton. And on the bottom of the baton, it had 2 Timothy 2.2, and under it, it simply said, it's your turn. In other words, I said, what we've tried to do at this university is pass the baton to you. Now it's your turn to go find some young people and pass the baton to them. 
I want you to think about if your life was coming to an end, imagine that you would not be here tomorrow, that today was your last day, tonight would be your last night, and you could write one letter to someone. Who would you write it to and what would you say? If you were writing a letter to your spouse or writing a letter to your children, writing a letter to someone who had an influence in your life, an impact on your life, if you're writing a letter to someone that you tried to mentor, who would you write it to and what would you say? The reason I mention that is that's what's going on in 2 Timothy. You see, sometimes what I think happens when we look at books in the Bible, we think, well, they're, they're sacred books, and they are. They're written by God. They're talking about things that happened 2,000 years ago, and there's issues of faith there, etc. And all of those things are true, but sometimes we forget they're written by people. People who are trying to follow God. People who want others to follow God. People who are dealing with conflicts and problems and persecution and they're writing to people with conflicts and problems and persecution. And we forget that real life people element to these letters. And so what happens is they don't become personal. And when they don't become personal, they don't change people. I often say one of the things I try to do when I'm reading a passage, I try to enter the passage. I try to become a part of the passage. I try to imagine the emotions and feelings of the people in the story. Try to, to wrestle with why did he say that? Why did she feel that way? How, why did he go there? Why didn't he go there? Because I feel like if I can get into the story, the story can get into me. If I can wrestle what it would have been like to live in their world and to write this letter or to read this letter or to live the things they're talking about, then it helps me better to think about, okay, well, what does that mean to me? How does that fit to my world? How does that connect to my life? How does that connect to my family? And so what I want to realize when we look at 2 Timothy, it's a letter. It's a letter written by a dying man to the young man, one of the young men he's mentored. He's basically turning his life's work over to this young man. And so what he's trying to do is get him ready for one of the worst moments in his life when they execute his mentor. And he's going to have to go forward and there's going to be no Paul to go visit and ask questions. There's going to be no more letters coming from Paul. It's going to be him against the world. And Paul wants to make sure he's ready. So Paul says at the end of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, he's basically saying, remember the message you preached. This is God-breathed. And every person who preaches or teaches a Bible class needs to remember, our goal is not to share our opinion for 30 minutes. Our goal is to open up the inspired, literally God-breathed message of God. He wanted Timothy to remember that the message he delivered was a God-breathed message. That when you open your mouth, you become a spokesperson for God. The primary word for preach in the New Testament, Caruso, is a person who was a public proclaimer, making announcements for the people, often on the behalf of somebody in power. And so he's saying, Timothy, you speak on behalf of the Creator of the universe. You speak a God-breathed message that can change lives. So he says, with God looking down upon what I'm asking you to do, with God looking down on what you're about to do, I charge you to go preach. 
Go proclaim. Go make it known. In season, out of season. When it's convenient, preach. When it's not convenient, preach. When it's easy, preach. When they want to kill you, preach. In season, out of season. Let nothing stop you from preaching the Word. Why? Because it's a God-breathed message. But he says also the reason he needs to preach is because there's a time coming when they won't listen anymore. In other words, he says this door is only open for a while. But there's a day coming when the door is going to close and they won't listen to you, Timothy. So use preach while they're ready to listen. My dad wasn't trained as a preacher. My dad was trained as an engineer. He was in the first graduating class in the engineering program at the University of Alabama Huntsville. He worked for Lockheed and worked in the space industry. He wasn't trained as a preacher, but he's preached most of my life and worked with small churches. And he's, been, he's, he's done more personal evangelism than any preacher I've known. And I remember my dad talking about it. He said, son, for most people in their lives, there will be a moment when the door will open. They'll have someone to die. They'll get a diagnosis. Something will happen in their lives that will cause them to think about whether there is a God. And he says, son, when that crack opens in that door, you better stick your foot in it. Don't wait until it's convenient. Don't wait until you have time. When the door opens, you better go through it because you may never get it again. That's exactly what Paul's saying to Timothy. Timothy, you not only have a message that's God's breathe, but you have a limited audience. They will not listen forever. And he goes on to say there's a time coming when they'll want their ears tickled. And he's playing on a, a commonly known phrase uttered by Seneca, which basically is the idea where Seneca said, why do you entertain me? Why do you tickle my ears? There's a time coming when they'll only want you to preach what they want to hear. When preaching will become entertainment. Does that sound familiar? He says, you preach because the day's coming when they won't want, will not want preaching, they'll want entertaining. And so if you're going to be successful, he says you need to be sober, alert. It's a military term for a soldier staying awake on guard duty. He says, don't go to sleep on the job. If you face hardships and struggles, don't you quit. He said, you started a ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Finish what you started. And then as he ends the book, he talks about his circumstances as he's challenging Timothy to, to take the job and go forward and knowing that Paul's not going to be there anymore to pick him up when he falls, to encourage him when he's discouraged. Paul then talks about what's happening in his life. And he says to his friend, can you come see me? I'd like to see you just one more time. And he talks about the fact that outside of Luke, who is his probably his personal physician, remember Paul talks about in the Corinthian letter that he had a thorn in the flesh. And so he had some kind of physical ailment, I think, and so having Luke the doctor traveling with him and a lot of his mission work would have been critically important. It's probably part of the reason he could survive as long as he did. He says, only my doctor's here. Everybody else is gone. Some are gone because they had other jobs to do. Some, like Demas, have deserted the faith. There are others who have strived to actively stop what I'm doing. In fact, he, he mentions one man in particular that may be the reason that he's in prison and may be the reason that he is going to die. And he says, in my first appearance, my first trial, it was just me and God, the prosecutors and the judge. 
You see, when, when Paul was popular, and Paul was doing miracles, and Paul was, doing, was growing churches and baptizing people, everybody wanted to hear Paul. But now Paul's on death row. Paul's a wanted man. Paul's an enemy of the state. So he's not getting any prison visits. Nobody's bringing him cookies in his jail cell. And when he's in court, there's nobody sitting in the gallery on his side. And so he says, make every effort to come before winter. Timothy, cold is coming. And I'd really like to see you one more time. It's an older preacher facing the end of the road, talking to the young man he's tried to mentor, and he is entrusting with his work. What you're witnessing in that letter is a final goodbye. It is the passing of a baton. I want you to think of the significance of that moment that he's turning his work over to somebody else. I want all of us who are older, all of us to realize, whatever you do for this congregation, you've got to turn it over to somebody else. If we don't pass the baton, that work ends. That Bible class ends. That deacon work ends. That elder work ends. That college work. That professor work. All of those things that we're involved in end if we don't pass it to a Timothy. The baton must be passed for the church to go forward into the future. It's interesting to think about why did he choose Timothy? Well, I think he may give some insight in Philippians chapter 2 when he basically says, I don't know of anybody like Timothy. He said, I don't have a kindred spirit. He said, I don't know anybody that has a spirit like Timothy. And he even tells the congregation, you know what a faithful co-worker he's been of me. In other words, Paul doesn't have to give them Timothy's resume. They know Timothy's resume. And he says he's got the kind of heart, he's also got the kind of actions. But as you think back over his life, he didn't always have the best of influences. It's interesting when you think about Timothy. Timothy is mentioned over 25 times in the New Testament. He's listed as co-sender in at least six of Paul's letters. I mean, he literally changed the world and traveled the world with Paul. As you look at this uh, picture or this map up on the screen, when Paul writes 2 Timothy, he's in Rome asking Timothy to come to Rome, and that's represented by the red arrow that's way over there on the left of the screen. When Paul brags on Timothy in the book of Philippians, he's trying to get the congregation at Philippi to welcome Timothy where he comes. And Philippi is where the blue arrow in this picture is. Timothy is from Lystra, which is represented by where the red, or use me, yellow arrow is in this map. I want you to think about the course of Timothy's life where he traveled from Lystra to Rome. Hundreds of miles he would travel with Paul. If you go back and look at his background and his story, Timothy's from the Lystra-Iconium area. Paul went through there on his first missionary journey and likely Paul converted him on that first missionary journey. The reason I think he probably converted him on the first missionary journey, first of all, he's going to join Paul as a missionary on the second journey. So he was a Christian prior to that. 
Second of all, Paul twice refers to him as his son in the faith. Likely a term for the fact that he studied with him and led him to Christ. And so likely on that first journey when Timothy was probably a teenager, Paul converts him to Christ. Now Timothy grew up in a family where his mother and his grandmother were Christians. His father not only was not a Jew, and so he had a racially mixed marriage, he had a spiritually mixed marriage. His father was not a Christian. Now having a racially mixed marriage is absolutely was no problem. But having a faith mixed marriage was. He did not have a father who modeled faith for him. And what's fascinating about Timothy's story is Timothy's story is both a story of the importance and influence of family, but it's also a story about how you can overcome negative influences within your family. You see, the power of the influence of family in his mother and his grandfather, mother, but his father, and then the fact that his grandfather would let his mother marry a non-believer means that not only is his father not a believer, but if his grandfather is, is a Jewish believer, he's not a faithful Orthodox Jew, or he would never let his daughter marry someone who doesn't believe in God. So the point is, likely, when it came to the men in his family, he was not given a heritage of faith. He didn't grow up in a home where he saw men living out faith. And so when we go to our letter in 2 Timothy, as he's at the end of his life, Paul says, remember where your faith came from. And that's what I want you to really think about with Timothy. Timothy's life could have gone in many directions. He could have followed the lead of his father, for example, and gone down a very different path. And so Timothy, having traveled with Paul over hundreds of miles, he's the one that Paul's going to turn a lot of his work over to. How did he get to this point? As we talk about the trust, and God could trust Mary and Joseph to raise baby Jesus. How did Timothy get to a point that Paul the Apostle would trust him to continue to mentor the churches that they had started together? It's because of those influences in his life. When Paul came back through the region of Lystra and Iconium on his second missionary journey, the local brethren bragged on Timothy. And Paul invited Timothy to join him. If we go and look at Paul's statements in 1 Timothy 4, remember when he talks to Timothy and says, let no one look down on your youth. That word for youth is a word that describes someone between the age of 20 and 40. Most people believe that Timothy was probably at about 35 at the time. He could not have been over the age of 40 at the time. When you start backing up chronologically in time from that back to the events of Acts chapter 16 on the second missionary journey, Timothy could not have been over 25 years old and was likely the age of the average college student. But the oldest he could have been was 25. So I want you to think about your, your 22. You haven't finished your degree at uh, Faulkner or Amridge or Freed or Heritage or wherever you might be. 
Maybe you're at Auburn or maybe you're at Alabama, where you may be, and a missionary shows up and says, I just need you to quit what you're doing right now. Go grab a suitcase and we're going to travel the world. It's basically what happened. Paul went through Lystra. Everybody said, hey man, look at this young man. He's doing great things. Paul said, great, you want to be a missionary? And he took this young guy, young college age guy, and he traveled the world and changed history. And 2,000 years later, we're telling his story. I don't know what you plan to do. My suspicion is when Timothy showed up for worship that day, he had all kinds of plan for, plans for his life. I would be shocked if when Paul came through town, he was thinking, well, I'm about to be a missionary, and they're going to write books about me, and they're going to talk about me in Montgomery, Alabama 2,000 years from now. And I've often told my students, I don't know what you're planning to do with your life. I've had students that were going to be nurses, and I've had students that were going to go into education or into history or be lawyers and all kinds of plans. And I said, that's great. Keep making plans, but just realize God may have some plans for your life. I don't know if Melvin ever thought he'd be teaching here. He may have thought he was going to spend the rest of his life in a, in a courtroom. But God had plans for his life. When Luke, the doctor, was going through medical school up there around Hierapolis, he probably had no idea that he'd be writing the two longest books in our New Testament. God used his training and education as a doctor to give us two books in our Bible. God has plans for us we've not even thought about yet. We've just got to be open to them when a, Tim, when a Paul shows up at our house or at our congregation and says, I need you to go with me to change the world. And when you look at the life of Timothy, it's fascinating to think of the influences in his life. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it emphasizes the influence of his mother and his grandmother. You think in Acts chapter 16, when Paul came back to Lystra in that area, it says the brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium bragged on him. Now I want you to just think about that. You can't brag on someone you didn't know. They can't brag on Timothy if they're not invested in Timothy's life. If they don't know what he's doing and they're not encouraging him and they're not invested in him. Let me ask you, could you brag on the young people here? Do we know them well enough? Do we spend enough time with them to be able to brag on them? I was talking to Sister Foster this morning uh, after the sermon, and she talked about, uh, even as her family was going through some tough things because of illness as she was growing up, how that whole congregation invested in her life. That seems to be exactly what happened to Timothy. They're all, when Paul comes back, says, you've got to see this young man in our congregation and all the great things he's doing. Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4 of how the, the presbytery or the elders laid hands on him. You remember I talked about in that survey that I did uh, for my doctoral work how that only 6% of those 300 plus students in the U.S. that filled that out said that an elder played a role. Well, Paul says, Timothy, the elders played a role. What probably happened is something like it happened in Acts chapter 13. Often when they, it seems, when they would send somebody out on a mission or a missionary journey, a mission on behalf of the congregation, the elders, it seems, would lay hands on them. This is not a miraculous laying on a hand, though that did exist in the New Testament. It was just an idea of we are sending you forth as missionaries on this task or whatever job would be. And so basically what he's saying is the elders prayed over you and commissioned you to, to go forth and do this work because that's, that's exactly what the elders did back at Antioch 
back in Acts chapter 13 when Paul and Barnabas were sent out on that first journey. The point is the elders were invested in the life of Timothy. And then you've got in 2 Timothy 1 and chapter 2, really all through 2 Timothy, this emphasis on the relationship between Paul and Timothy. You see, Paul and Timothy, Paul didn't, Paul became his surrogate spiritual father. Timothy didn't grow up a family with a father and a grandfather that modeled faith in front of him. But he did have a Paul who stepped into that void. And over the years, there have been many coaches and teachers and Bible class teachers and other Christians who have stepped into the void where there was not a mom or a dad. Or there might have been a mom and dad, but they didn't model spiritual faith who took them in and made them family. You know, um, I became a beekeeper last year, and I was recently reading an article in which they were talking about, actually it was a, a post in one of the sites I go to where beekeepers go to, and one person asked the question, what happens to orphan bees? See, if a queen dies and there's no brood, in other words, there's no young in the hive, that hive's going to die. They basically become orphaned. Or sometimes bees will get lost from a hive. For example, there, there are some beekeepers that will give their hives to farmers. And so if they're not careful about when they move their hive, they can load their hive up and send it off on a truck while part of their foraging bees are actually out foraging. And then those foraging bees come back and their home's gone. Or sometimes they'll get lost. And so you, you can have orphan bees. And if they don't find a home, they're going to die. But what's interesting is, as I did some further reading and listened to what some of the comments of some of the other beekeepers were, they talked about how a new queen will go out on her mating flight. And she'll go out on her mating flight, and then she'll come back ready to have children. She's going to come back to her colony. And what will happen is, when she goes out on her mating flight, she will often come back home with a little small swarm that she will literally gather up orphan bees and bring them back to the colony and give them a home. You see, when we talk about the importance of family, we have to deal with the reality that there are a lot of young people who don't have moms and dads that are there for them. Or if mom and dad is there, maybe they're not the spiritual examples they could be. And so Timothy, Timothy, we can relate to that, can't we? Because Timothy had family members that were there for him. He had family members who were not there for him. But the members of the church, people like Paul, the elders and the other members, stepped into the void. They took him in. They brought him into the colony. And Timothy became who he became because all of these people stepped into his life. All of these people invested in him. Remember when we looked at all of those quotes and all that research this morning? And we talked about that faith forms in family and faith forms in fellowship. Timothy is a living embodiment and example of that. Of the power of family and the power of elders and the power of teachers and the power of mentors. A power of people that love into their lives and pass the baton. Two things have to happen if the baton is going to be passed. You have to have someone ready to receive it and someone ready to give it. And let me talk to the parents for just a moment. I know this is going to get personal. They can't change the world, mom and dad, if you won't let go. They can't go change the world 
if you don't let go? What if Timothy's mom had said, but now wait a minute, your brothers and sisters live right down the block. Now wait a minute, you are going to take over the family business. Wait a minute, I want my grandchildren living in the same neighborhood. What if Timothy's mom had said that? You see, I believe my job as a parent is to give my kids up to the God, to God. And I can remember when, when, again, teaching classes, and I would have guys that were graduating and say, hey, could you find me a preaching job in Nashville uh, within an hour of right here? And I said, well, what if God needs a preacher somewhere else? Does God only need preachers in Montgomery and Nashville? Well, there's a boatload of people willing to go to Montgomery and Nashville. Who's going to go to Zimbabwe? Who's going to go to India? Who's going to go to Nairobi? If we don't give up our kids to God, there's no baton passing happening. I want to challenge us as parents to be like the mother and the grandmother of Timothy. They not only led him to Jesus, they gave him up to Jesus, even though that meant they spent less time with him. Because let me tell you, if you give your kids to God, you will get more time with them in a place called heaven. But if you treasure your time with them now and don't let God use them on the other parts of the world, then there will be some people that will never get to enjoy heaven with you. There has to be somebody willing to take the baton, somebody willing to give the baton, and a family that once you've given the baton, you let them run their race. Let God use them to change the world. When I'm not working at Heritage Christian, I'm usually somewhere in Latin America. I work with the Forest Park congregation in Valdosta, planning, teaching short courses at the Bible School of the Americas and, and starting future ministers training camp like so many of the young men in this room have gone to. Since 2011, God has put future ministers camps in 10 countries in Latin America, and we will add, Lord willing, Mexico as the 11th country in July. I go in with a small group of two to four people, work with the local brethren, and for two years, we train junior high, college, high school students in how to put lessons together, how to be leaders in the local church, how to be an elder, how to do personal evangelism. So this particular picture is the camp in Panama. First camp that we started in 2011. We did it two years and they keep it right on going. Every spring break I teach a class at the Bible School of the Americas in Panama. And in this ticker picture, this is Rafael Paguaga, who has been my translator for several, several years. I want to tell you Rafael's story. In this picture, all five of these young men who were students at the Bible School of the Americas in Panama and now are graduates, attended one of the future minister training camps in Latin America. Over the years, a number of the high school students from those camps have then come to the Bible School of the Americas to get a degree in Bible so they could go out and preach the gospel. Here are five guys in Raphael's class. Raphael attended the camp in Honduras. At that camp, he not only learned how to put a sermon together, he learned how to do personal evangelism. So when the camp was over, he went to a friend of his who was not a Christian. And he studied the Bible with his high school friend and baptized him into Christ. 
Then his friend started doing Bible studies with his family members. This is his friend in a Bible study, and that's his friend's father and his friend's cousin. Before it was over, his friend had baptized five members of his family into Jesus Christ. This is his friend's father the first Sunday that he headed up the Lord's Supper table at their local congregation. It all started with one high school student that took the baton and decided to change the world. Raphael is now one of the teachers and translators at the Bible School of the Americas. The point I'm trying to make is these young people will change the world. They're just looking for someone to mentor them, to hand them baton, and let go and let them run. I don't know where you are in your race, but if we can help you, if we can help you begin your race with Jesus and share with you the joy of your putting on Christ in faith expressed in baptism, we'd love to share in that. We'd love to pray with you and send you forth and encourage you. I want to challenge all of us to think about who am I passing the baton to and then I want you guys to think about who are you taking the baton from and what are you going to do with it. What are you going to do with your life? Because you can get all kinds of degrees, you can get all kinds of job skills, but whatever you're after, the ultimate goal should be what can I do with my life that glorifies God and makes the world a better place. To pass the baton, somebody has to give it, somebody has to receive it, and somebody has to stand back and let them run. If we can help you do that, come as we stand and sing. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, so for grace to trust Him more. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust His cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing cleansing flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I prove Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, so for grace to trust Him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust Thee, precious Jesus, saving friend. And I know that Thou art with me, Wilt be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I 
I trust him, how I prove him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Now our closing prayer.